Hi, my name is Will McBride, and you're listening to Blackout Tuesday. Nearly one year after George Floyd's death at the hand of Derek Chauvin, we have Chauvin being charged with second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter, and the jury finds him guilty. And this is significant, and this is significant for a few reasons. The first is how rare this kind of result is for this kind of case, and that really highlights some of the unique factors at play here. There was ample video footage available of the incident from both the bystanders and the officer's body cameras. And the killing itself was over nine minutes long instead of a few seconds like a shooting would be. And that eliminated any sort of split-second judgment defense cops usually reach for in similar cases. You have an example here of police brutality so undeniable that Chauvin's own police department fired him, fellow officers are testifying against him in court, no more blue wall of silence. And with all this going on, it's very clear that this is such an unusual case of police brutality. According to the Washington Post database mapping police violence, which tracks fatal police counters across the U.S., there's been more than 5,000 people killed by police since 2015, with the police killing about 1,000 civilians per year. Since Chauvin's trial began on March 29th, there have been 64 shootings, including one that happened in Columbus moments before the verdict was read for the case. And yet, in spite of these numbers, only 121 officers from 2005 have been charged for murder or manslaughter, Of those, only seven were convicted of these crimes. That's a less than 6% conviction rate for said crimes, just to give a look at how rare this case is. Here's a clip of Keith Ellison, who delivered the prosecution's closing argument. He's charged as manslaughter. Defendant at the time was a police officer. Hey, uh, it may be hard, it may be hard for any of you to imagine a police officer doing something like this. We trust the police. We trust the police to help us. We believe the police are going to respond to our call for help. We believe they're going to listen to us. And with with reason, and with good reason, right? Because policing is a most noble profession. It is, it is. And to be very clear, this case, this case is called the state of Minnesota versus Derek Chauvin. This case is not called the state of Minnesota versus the police. This trial, at least from the view of the state who led the prosecution, isn't about the failures of policing. Instead, it's about the erratic, unprofessional, and unexpected behavior of a rogue police officer. The prosecution, the state, is making a case towards the America that trusts the police, that is not only disturbed by this encounter, but that can't seem to wrap their head around the idea that a United States police officer would do such a thing, right? So Chauvin being convicted isn't a win for the fight against police brutality as it exists. Instead, it much more so provides compelling juxtaposition between this case and the amount of other cases that have resolved without any charges, investigations, or arrests, let alone convictions. That only instances with this amount of footage and evidence and international attention, plus the support of corporate America, are going to result in the most basic of responses to someone having clearly committed a crime to be held responsible for it. That's something that should already be happening. However, 
something to address the larger issue at hand may be underway. Which brings me to my next point, and that's the success of this trial adding momentum to the passing of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. In response to Floyd's death and the protests that ensued in summer 2020, a police reform bill with Floyd as its namesake was drafted and introduced to Congress in February 2021, passing the House of Representatives and garnering support from the current White House administration. While Senate Democrats and Republicans are currently in negotiations for the bill due to the need for bipartisan support to avoid a filibuster, as it currently stands, it has a few key elements that make the bill potentially transformative for policing, including requiring federal officers to wear body cameras, restricting police access to military equipment, requiring federally funded state and local agencies to prohibit chokeholds and no-knock warrants, and, most controversially, restricting qualified immunity for officers, which is a provision that protects government officials from civil suits. However, looking at the bill, it's, it's clear that similar to the argument in the prosecution team for the Chauvin trial, in searching for solutions, police brutality is being approached as the missteps of bad actors, rather than an inevitability of policing. The bill largely aims to make it easier to hold police accountable, or to discourage any otherwise roguish officer from escalating the situation, and not to outright limit such confrontations in the first place. Even though when considering social justice reform, the poor treatment of black people from the police is notable and should definitely be considered, it's still likely not the case that each of these officers is in fact purposefully killing citizens due to the race that they are seeking out black people to take down. Though that is a possibility in some cases, it's unlikely that this is true in all cases. Instead, we know that Americans as a whole, including cops, regardless of age, gender, race, or political views, all hold subconscious racial biases. By participating in a society in which racism and its effects can be found everywhere, and by having brains designed to look for patterns to better process information, we absorb patterns and subliminal messages about what certain races do, look, and behave like, whether these associations are positive, such as excelling in certain sports, or negative, such as abusing drugs and committing crimes. A 2012 study conducted by the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues found that both police officers and civilians of any race or gender were more likely to shoot black individuals, whether armed or unarmed, than any other race. They were both quicker to shoot armed black targets and slower to indicate don't shoot for unarmed black targets. If officers are subconsciously viewing black suspects as more threatening and aggressive due to implicit bias, then all of the accountability legislation in the world won't keep George Floyd from happening again, and it definitely wouldn't have stopped it in the first place. And looking for solutions, we should instead be looking to limit police encounters with civilians at all, as well as, in a broader sense, be looking to undo and correct, where possible, the institutions that make these encounters likely and deadly in the first place. And that can be approached through drug legalization. Now, to understand the impact of drug criminalization on policing and race, we have to take a look at how the so-called war on drugs came about. In June 1971, President Richard Nixon declared drug abuse to be public enemy number one and went on to increase federal funding to fight all these newly created drug crimes. However, Nixon's advisor, John Ehrlichman, the Watergate guy, revealed in a 1994 interview that the real public enemy was elsewhere, anti-war leftists and black people. As he says, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. And it worked. Today, drug offenses are the leading cause of arrest in the United States, mostly for possession alone. Black people take up 26% of those arrested and are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people. 
in spite of the fact that Black people make up 13% of the U.S. population, and despite the fact that Black and white folks use and sell drugs at similar rates. This is largely due to the over-policing and over-surveillance of Black neighborhoods and communities, and any attempts to reform policing cannot ignore this. The conversation and attempts for reform have to shift from being reactive by targeting accountability to instead being proactive to keep this from happening again. And now is the moment. We have the world's attention. What happens next is critical. Again, I'm your host, Will McBride, and thank you for tuning in to Blackout Tuesday. Until next time.